This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, it's been another busy day, so let's get straight to it. Talks continue as members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada spend their first day on the picket lines. A deal's been reached for the purchase of schools on the Avalon and Buren Peninsulas owned by the Roman Catholic Church to be sold to the provincial government and Kane's Quest prepares for a 2024 resumption of the world's toughest snowmobile endurance race. Well, today is day one of the Public Service Alliance of Canada's strike 155,000 public service workers took to picket lines right across the country after the deadline to reach a deal passed last night the work stoppage could cause delays in things like the processing of tax and federal benefits returns uh, there could be some limited in-person services for things like your uh, getting your passport unless of course you have an emergency or a humanitarian situation develops and there could be some delays in the processing of immigration applications well treasury board Board President Mona Forche spoke with reporters in Ottawa just a short while ago. So uh, I, I have to say the last two weeks there has been uh, many conversations going from one room to another with mediation and that is what uh, negotiations are and that uh, this morning uh, my understanding is that to, uh, uh, well, the union and the government were at the table uh, working together and that uh, is uh, the same case uh, as we speak. Thank you. Um, and just a quick follow-up. Um, I know the government has said that it respects the right to, to strike, but that it should be a last resort. How long is too long for this to drag out? Well, as I said, uh, I hope that this will be um, a deal that we can reach as soon as possible and uh, we respect uh, the right of uh, employers to go on strike. I believe that we have an opportunity to work together and uh, get to uh, an agreement and therefore make sure that we all focus on uh, one thing, which is to deliver core services to Canadians. And that was Treasury Board President Mona Forche speaking with reporters in Ottawa a short while ago about the Public Service Alliance of Canada strike. Well, Regional Executive Vice President for the Public Service Alliance of Canada Atlantic, Chris D. Liberatori, is on the line. Treasury Board President Mona Forche is still expressing hope that uh, a solution can be found here. What's uh, the first day been like on the, uh, on the picket lines? Well, our, our members are mo- motivated. They're the you know morale is high on the lines, and they're ready to stay out there as long as is necessary for the government to provide an offer that that addresses our key issues and provides for wage increases that keep up with the cost of living. And, and when the when the government is is willing to come to the table with an offer that addresses those things, uh, I'm, we're we're hopeful that uh, we'll be able to reach a deal and, and uh, get back to work. How are talks going right now? Uh, I've uh, I've got no information on exactly what's going on at the table right now. I mean that that wouldn't be and it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about anything that uh, that would be happening like that in the uh, in the uh, media currently where we are right at, at the table right now. Where were we just prior to the strike? Were the two sides very far apart? Far enough that, that we felt it necessary to take this action. Because again, the, the government has not come with an offer that, that addresses our key issues. While there had been some progress, we still hadn't gotten to the point that we felt we had a, a deal that was reasonable for our members uh, that addressed our key issues and, and met their needs. So what are those sticking points? 
So the sticking points are wages. So we've been asking for for four and a half percent per year over three years. And uh, while the most recent offer uh, has come up a little bit to uh, to to three percent per year for for uh, on average uh, for for three years, it still doesn't quite reach that level where it where it's keeping pace with with inflation. I mean, uh, we understand that you know it can, inflation is still continuing to to recede a bit here. However, we're we're negotiating two years in the past right now. So we've been at the table for two years. The, the contracts expired in 2021. So the, the increases that we need need to address that as well. And what about this whole issue of um, employees being asked to return to the workplace? Of course, the workplace for a lot of people these days has been from home. And I understand that that is something that uh, members would like to see um, retained or, or at least that flexibility would be retained. Well, exactly. And, and that is one of our key issues is the ability to work remotely. But to be clear, it's not that all of our members want to work from home because some do want to come into the office. However, the, the plan that was the, and, and the announcement that was made back in December uh, that everybody was coming back into and into the workplace was flawed. And the, and the government themselves weren't ready to have everybody coming back in with, with the additional people that have been hired uh, over, over the, the course of the pandemic. They don't have the infrastructure and the, and the, actual, the, the seats to actually put people into. Uh, I spoke about this this morning with uh, with one of your colleagues that uh, if we take CRA for example uh, at their call site they have 1,800 uh, employees there for, for that we represent they have 400 desks how are you going to put 1,800 people into 400 desks it just it just doesn't work and we've got people people in other departments showing up and there's no desk for them to to sit at so they're having to turn around and go home so what we what we're asking for with respect to this is that there is a reasonable access to the ability to work remotely for those people that it does work for whatever their personal circumstances might be there might be issues with childcare there might be issues with with uh, with, with, with uh, healthcare uh, and, and looking at looking after elderly uh, elderly parents that it it enables them to do both to be able to work and still address the, those those things so having that ability and that it can't it's not unreasonably denied that there's language in the collective agreement that protects our members ability to be able to work remotely is very important do you know what was behind this push towards the uh, towards the office we we suspect that it was uh, the business community were were did a very good job of lobbying government that they needed our, our employees in Ottawa to to come back into the downtown core to help support the restaurants and businesses that were there, uh, and uh, that's that's where we believe that this came from. Uh, and that said, uh, we believe that the government also uh, was a little bit short sighted and. and there was other things that they could have done to address that need and also could have uh, addressed the the uh, affordable housing crisis by converting some of those office spaces into into affordable housing they could have moved people into those into those uh, areas where they would be residing there 24/7 instead of commuting there monday to friday 9 9 to 5 and, and or 8 or 8 to 8 to 4 and they would have had the the 24/7 support for those businesses in, in the downtown core and revitalized uh, a lot of the uh, the economy in the downtown core so all based on Ottawa? I think a lot of it was. Treasury Board President Mona Forche says she remains hopeful that a deal can be reached as soon as possible. Are you as optimistic? We remain optimistic that we'll be able to reach a deal. But it's up to the government now to come to the table with something that respects our members and addresses our key issues and the needs of our members. It's in their hands. Chris, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Regional Executive Vice President for the Public Service Alliance of Canada Atlantic, Chris D. Liberatore. Uh, coming up, the RNC Constable uh, Doug Snellgrove loses uh, his appeal of uh, his sexual assault conviction. This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And we're back and uh, just getting set up here now uh, with Mr. Brian Callahan right here, Brian. <laughs> I had it set up for you over there, um, but we've uh, we've got a bit of a. Here we go. There he is. Um, so, uh, Brian, you've been following this one since last night, I understand. And uh, RNC Constable Douglas Snellgrove has lost an appeal of his sexual assault uh, conviction. And uh, Brian Callahan, who's been following this for a little while now, uh, joins me now. So uh, what's happened? Well, in a nutshell, uh, as we know, it's been reported now all day that the appeal was dismissed um, by Constable Douglas Snellgrove, still technically a constable. We haven't heard from the RNC yet. Uh, and there are still some, yeah, I mean, there's still an, an appeal option open here. And they've always said that as long as the appeals are not exhausted, then, you know, technically he's still an officer. They don't want to get ahead of themselves. Uh, but this is, uh, this is interesting. A few things here, Linda, first of all. We just got the uh, actual decision about a half hour ago. The most telling thing, it, you know, these decisions can be, you know, pretty in-depth and, and tangly and long and drawn out. There is a bit of that here. It's, it's not as long as I thought, but the very last line um, makes it clear where they were going there. There were no errors by the judge, period. Blunt, frank, I don't often see that at the end of a decision. I mean, that's usually a fait accompli. I mean, obviously, they say in the course of the ruling. But to, to repeat it at the end, it's not lost on anyone that the first two trials here were, were nullified by judges' errors. So maybe that's intentional, maybe it's not. But it certainly states that there were none. Um, Mr. Snellgrove's lawyers, a husband and wife duo from Ontario, he hired for this appeal. Uh, they went through an exhaustive arguments. Uh, we sat through it in the Court of Appeal. Um, it, basically, they were alleging a few things. One, that um, there were discussions held away from Mr. Snellgrove when he wasn't present uh, regarding jury charge and discussions of questions by the jury. Um, the Court of Appeal dismissed that, saying he had a designation of counsel who was present for many of those discussions. So when they weighed it all, they said there was a, you know, he had a designation, there was a lawyer there, so he was not prejudiced and there was no miscarriage of trial on that, justice on that. The second, uh, you know, issue that he had uh, argued about was that there were um, questions that the jury had asked of uh, the justice, Justice Vikas Kaladkar was the, the judge in this case. No pressure on him at all after three, two mistrials ahead of him. Um, not his doing, but other judges. So, you know, uh, he knew that this uh, uh, ruling would get, um, you know, be looked at very closely by everyone, including the Court of Appeal. So uh, this other question was that whether or not there were questions that he didn't really, uh, you know, answer about abuse of trust or position of trust. It gets kind of tangly. There was alcohol involved here. It was known that the woman was, uh, was drinking, um, you know, and all kinds of issues of at what point in the position of trust you have to draw the line and, and you know, your position of trust takes precedence. So uh, they had questioned any, uh, a lot of the questions the jury had asked, very intricate, detailed questions, and he had to be very careful about how you answer those questions as a judge. And again, the Court of Appeal found that there was, even if there were errors, it's interesting, in some cases they say even if there were, and sometimes they call them fatal errors, 
even if there was there was um, enough um, uh, they call it proviso it's an Italian term that it would cure those errors and that they would be not substantial enough again to cause a miscarriage of justice or prejudice Mr. Snowgrove. So those were, you know, that's repeated in all of the, uh, the, um, the issues that were raised by the defense. And the last one, of course, is really a moot point because they had argued that if the court finds errors, then there should be a further stay of proceedings. The matter shouldn't continue. Mr. Snellgrove should walk free. And a fourth trial would be, you know, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, not in their words, but they would call it an abusive process if there was a fourth trial. I'm sure the victim in this case would agree, not just an abusive process, but further abuse possibly of her. So, and quite possibly the public as well, because absolute, I think a lot of people in the public have been a little bit fed up with this process. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions. It's a tangly legal process, so it's... You know, there are a lot of things. It's not as simple as this has gone on too long, so we just got to stop doing it. Although in some cases, the appeal court does actually explicitly say that. We know there's the Jordan rule now that says you can't go on forever. So in any event, uh, they dismissed everything out of hand. No errors by the judge. The interesting thing here, if it's unanimous. So the three-court panel, um, Justice Hogue, Justice Goodridge, and... Da, 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 da. Oh, I hope the third judge isn't listening, but I just got, I can't see it in front of me right now. <laughs> but in any event, uh, it's unanimous, which if it had not been unanimous, say two to one split decision, it, it would have automatically, automatically gone to Supreme Court of Canada, uh, Supreme Court of Canada for further review. Uh, but that's not the case here. So it'll be up to his lawyers whether or not. So the next question everybody wants to know is, does he go right to jail now? Um, he was sentenced to four years in prison back in November. That was, uh, he was granted bail pending the outcome of this appeal. So uh, the question is, there are reports that he has 24 hours to turn himself in, but I'm sure his lawyers are working frantically to try to maybe extend the bail, unless they have absolutely, even if they have no intentions of appealing, just in the short term, they may ask for an extension while they consider that, at least to give him some time maybe to get affairs in order or whatever, or who knows. Uh, I can't, you know, uh, we've reached out to those lawyers on several occasions and not received any comment, but... Um, as far as, and the RNC says they want time to review it as well. They want to make sure the wording here to see how explicit it is. And again, I'm not sure. I mean, it, 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 if there's any, it's a unanimous decision. So, you know, the question has always been as well. At what point does RNC Constable Douglas Snellgrove not become an RNC constable anymore? Uh, so and let's be clear. He hasn't been working uh, with the RNC. He just has retained this title um, while this process works yeah. its way through the courts because they can't act until this process is complete. Absolutely. So there's so many, you know, irons in the fire here that we have to be careful of. Very early, like I said, the actual wording of the decision just released publicly about a half hour ago. So uh, it remains to be seen. I'm sure the RNC will re release something pretty soon on, on his status, Snellgrove's status. And, you know, the, we all know that this uh, particular case triggered a lot of other uh, cases that have come, that may come be after it. We know that there are many allegations now of RNC officers, both retired and currently uh, on the force, uh, facing allegations. So uh, this, this case is so landmark that um, we'll, it remains to be seen whether this is in the end of it. Uh, there are really, you know, the Court of Appeal, the, the Supreme Court of Canada only hears cases of significant public importance. You can look at the list of, you know, criteria that they go through before they'll hear it. And you can't just appeal. They have to uh, agree to hear the appeal. So depending, and these are serious issues here. So, you know, I wouldn't rule anything out at this point. It could still go to the highest court in the land. 
it's gone to the highest court in this land, which has said Mr. Snellgrove is guilty and deserves to go to prison for four years. Whether or not that goes any further remains to be seen. Well, and that was my next question, actually. You, you, you kind of answered it there, there, but is this it now? Is it finally over? Has he exhausted all his options? What can we expect next? Well, that's it. It's, it, it, it's all up to, you know, they'll have another 30-day period, I believe it is, to decide whether or not to appeal to the highest court in the country. That's the only place it could go now. And they'll decide whether and it's a significant enough case that it should air a public airing in the nation's highest court because, again, they always look at precedent with these cases. Is this a case that needs to be clarified? Is this a case that needs legislation possibly updated? Like, do we need to send a signal here? So, uh, you know, they'll, it's, it's not even at that stage. This is uh, a day after the Court of Appeal dismissed it. So, um, you know, so many of these things happen behind closed doors. Who knows what discussions, machinations are going on? But uh, the minute we hear anything, um, you'll know. I, I guess the, the biggest question right now looming is where is Constable Snellgrove and whether or not he has been taken into custody or whether or not his bail can continue pending another possible appeal. You've been watching this for quite some time, of course, and you're in the courtroom and you're getting a sense of uh, people's reactions to these kinds of things. You're seeing the reactions uh, live in front of you. Um, does a, a, a case like this and the fact that it has uh, dragged out to this extent that we've seen all the these different um, processes involved, does it have a chilling effect on people who might encounter something like this in future and, and, and want to come forward but feel as though maybe the yeah. system... I think it has both, Linda. I think it's a chilling effect, but it's also reassuring that these things are vetted deeply. I mean, I remember Lloyd Strickland, who was the, original, who was the crown on the third trial, second, third trial, sorry, it's hard to keep track, on the third trial in which Mr. Snuller was convicted and sentenced to four years. You know, he makes the point that, yeah, this is drawn out, but it has worked. Like, it has caught errors. It has not been ideal because it's taken eight years from the moment that the incident is alleged to have occurred in December of 2014. So, yeah, the easiest thing to say is, oh, my God, justice delayed is justice denied. There are, you know, catch-alls in the system for that, whether it's the Jordan ruling that's been more specific about how long, a, you know, a case can, you know, languish before it gets to trial, because we all know some people delay cases for many reasons. Um, but I think it's both. I think it's both. I just think that we, the closer you are to it, the closer you realize. It's like anything. When you know how something works, it helps to gain a better appreciation and understanding of it. And in this case, you know, from what I know of the court and, and, and all of the learned minds that are down there, I don't have a law degree, but uh, the consensus is that as, as much as this has been very sensitive, very high profile, officer, uh, alleged rape, uh, not alleged anymore, convicted of rape, um, and the other cases that may be to come, people are being very careful, but they're also making point that this is the way the justice system works. Sure, we can go back to the drawing board, but uh, you know, there's probably always there's flaws in everything, and there were judges' mistakes here. But in in the end, you know, we have three of the top learned minds in the province saying that everything was done right here. The public should rest assured. Um, the right person is going to jail for the crime, uh, whether or not. And and but the justice system also allows for a further appeal. And so we have to respect it all, unless until somebody comes up with a better one. It's easy to you know critique it and complain about it, especially when you are the accused. But uh, I think we can be rest assured that yeah, there's some chilling effect of people will complain. You know, especially the we've saw lots of protests with this case. Uh, but I think even those people 
um, would agree that at least it was done right and concluded properly. It might be easier for them to say that because there was a conviction. If he was ever acquitted, they might be on the other side of it and say it's all been a waste of years. But, uh, you know, it seems to have been not denied and rather justice done right. Well, Brian Callahan, it's a difficult case. I see your notes here. This is extraordinary. <laughs> you ma you managed to put that all together in just a few minutes. But th this kind of information came out. We just have a few minutes now before the news break. But this information came out in a, um, I guess, a, a media report yesterday. It, it, and you were detailing this morning how it's a little bit unusual. It is, it is you know, to hear sources leak, you know, but it's not really a leak. The situation here is that um, there's, a, there's a format that the Court of Appeal uses, and they will release a decision to the parties, the, to the affected parties first. And that happened 24 hours ago. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Only the defense, the Crown, the court, the court staff would have known, and of course victim services because they would be helping the victim in this case. So there were enough people, I think, to know that it was happening, but very rarely do you see sources say and sources around a leak, uh, around, a, uh, around a court decision. You know, these things are made public. They just take a little bit of time. So there's a, a process whereby they have that 24 hours to get the people who are most affected, the players, the parties, uh, you know, give them, you know, that privacy with the decision to absorb it, just instead of throwing it out to the public, because I think you'd hear a backlash then, too, if it was thrown out to everyone at the same time. I think the parties deserve that uh, initial heads up before the media and the public get to vet it. Absolutely. Well, uh, Brian Callahan, I do appreciate your time on this. Thank you. No worries, Linda. Thank you. Uh, Brian Callahan, of course, following that story and many more in the courts. And we're going to get a little update as well on what's been happening with the uh, RC schools in Newfoundland and Labrador. So we're going to hear from some of the reaction from some of the lawyers involved in that one when we come back after the break. Uh, this is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Thanks, Noah and Claudette. Well, as VOCM News first reported last week, a settlement has been reached between the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation of St. John's, the provincial government, and lawyers representing victims of sexual abuse, victims at the, uh, the hands of the church. They've settled on $13 million as the value for 32 public schools on the Avalon and Buren Peninsulas, essentially saving them from being sold to someone else and leaving students out in the cold. The province will pay that amount to the church for the schools and that money will then go into the pot of money needed to settle the sex abuse claims against the church. The agreement in principle was approved in Supreme Court this morning. Afterwards, counsel for the English school district Rob Zadibiak and Jeff Budden, who represents abuse victims, spoke briefly with reporters including VOCM's Brian Callahan. And so what does this mean for schools now the, the, that were um, sort of a cloud over them for, this, uh, for these proceedings? Well, the schools are going to carry on as normal. We're glad it's all, all resolved and uh, the schools will continue as they've always been. Was there ever a question that uh, we might have to find an alternative option here? That's a difficult question. Uh, you know, law is never ever certain, but uh, I think everyone was confident that at the end of the day it will work out for all the, the students of uh, and the citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador. How did you come up with a $13 million figure? 
That wasn't mine. This is, that was a government decision. Do you foresee any major complications going forward here? This is an agreement in principle. It's an agreement in principle. I, I don't see any any issues. No, no, we'll we'll work them out. It's, it's said in court that uh, you know there's an agreement in principle, and uh, there'll be dispute mechanisms involved if uh, if there are any issues. But certainly, we don't see any any you know sub substantial issues. Uh, you know, you're dealing with title to property, Newfoundland that's 100, 150 years old. So obviously, there's going to be issues with title. But uh, you know, generally speaking, I think we're uh, we're onward and upward. All right, so Jeff, uh, big day. Uh, what does this mean? Well, it means the ownership of the schools, the Catholic schools on the Avalon Peninsula have been resolved, and that much more money, the 13 million, will be available to compensate survivors of abuse. So uh, up till now, we understood there was already maybe 30 million or so uh, from the churches. This is 13 million. You had spoken earlier, and we've talked about the $50 million figure. Will this be enough to get you over the top? We're getting there. It's, uh, there are other assets yet to be sold, and there's insurance policies out there that have yet to be litigated whether they're valid or not, but I'm pleased where we're to. There's been a, quite a few milestones here. How, how would you rate this one here today? This was a big one. It's uh, in a bunch of ways. It's uh, a historical legacy of denominational education that has now been resolved. That uh, some questions about who really owned the schools, and uh, so that's that's been resolved, at least for the Avalon Peninsula, the Catholic schools, and so that's big. And of course, for the survivors, this is that much more available to compensate them for the the terrible harm they suffered. So it's a, it's a pretty significant day legally and in every other way for the people involved. Does this question of uncertain title remain for schools for the other Episcopal corporations in the province? Uh, yes. The circumstances of an insolvency uh, provide a, a route to resolve them. That might not be available for the other schools. But yeah, the, the title issues would be the same. So in Corner Brook or Grand Falls or something, they might have schools like this as well, but that's not settled now. Corner Brook has uh, gone through its own insolvency 20 oh, years ago, yeah. but you're right, for Grand Falls, for the Pentecostal schools, for the couple of other schools from other denominations, yes, th those issues are still out there. Can you tell us why there's an impasse over the selection of a claims officer? Uh, no, I think we have, we're talking and hopefully we'll resolve that too. So when might money start to flow then, then to uh, survivors? I'm still hopeful that the money be flowing in uh, 2023. The claims bar date for men and women to come forward is September 30th and uh, the, the process of assessing the claims will begin before then and obviously will continue after that for, for those, those that are filed in the, the latter stages. So we, uh, we still hope and are still working towards some distribution in late 2023. Did you have an update on numbers on how many victims there might be, how many survivors? Uh, so far, we've been contacted by well over, just our firm, well over 100. There's uh, Bob's firm, uh, Morris Martin Moore, uh, Greg Stack's firm, and the, the cases from BC. So in total, it must, be, it must be 150 or more. Are you satisfied you got enough for the schools, you know, from the value of the schools? It seems like this 32 schools is a lot of property, and $13 million doesn't seem like a lot to me. I guess if you're dividing the number of uh, the money by the number of schools, uh, it, it may not be in that way a large number. However, we 
had some uh, real legal challenges there. The Schools Act itself, <coughs> which on its face clearly says these schools are to be used for perpetu in perpetuity, so with that hurdle to overcome, there are issues around the, <coughs> the contributions the government made or, <coughs> excuse me, the denominations would have made and trying to unpack financial transactions from the 50s, 60s, 70s, even earlier. I mean, we had property here that the church purchased in pounds, pounds sterling back in the 1860s. So it was... Uh, Path of least resistance? Uh, well, I don't know. It doesn't feel like the path of least resistance, but it was... Uh, the, the government had a duty to be mindful of the public purse, and we had a duty, as did the Episcopal Corporation and the Monitor, to maximize the funds available. And we all had a duty, I guess, to minimize the risk to our clients. So that's that's the number that we arrived at, and it's a number that I feel is uh, is, is a reasonable compromise. So that's lawyer Jeff Button, uh, who represented the abuse victims uh, at Mount Cashel. And uh, English School District uh, Council Rob Zadibiak, uh, who spoke with reporters today after that agreement in principle was reached uh, between um, the um, uh, government and the uh, RC Church on the sale of school properties on the Avalon and Buren Peninsulas. 32 public schools, 13 million dollars. Well, mayors representing three of the largest municipalities in the province have signed a letter of intent to establish a regional economic development agency to develop regional partnership opportunities. But one key player has opted out. St. John's Mayor Danny Breen signed the agreement with Paradise Mayor Dan Bobbitt and CBS Mayor Darren Bent this morning. However, the city of Mount Pearl not interested. VOCM's Richard Duggan was there. He and others questioned the mayors about the program, and as you will hear, many of the questions centered around, uh, where was Mount Pearl? Yeah, so this new agency uh, will use the resources that we already have in place, as well as establish its own. And it'll build its own, uh, I guess, uh, organization uh, from the uh, bottom up. And our hope is that it will expand into an agency that will be self-sufficient and will be able to uh, represent all three based on the needs that all three of us have. We'll have representation on the Board of Governance to direct it in the way we want it to go. So when it comes to stepping on each other a little bit, uh, there always be some of that because we're doing that right now. When we're working individually, of course, we're all aiming to get the same prize. Working together, we think we have a better chance at that prize. Why isn't Mount Pearl part of this? Well, that's first of all, I think you'd have to ask Mount Pearl that, but I will say that Mount Pearl was part of the discussions right up until the 11th hour, and at the end of the day, they decided to do something different and not join in with us. It'll be equal representation. Uh, you know, we are the three largest municipalities uh, on the in this region, and uh, together we'll we're going to work together as we always have, and this will be no different. So, no more competition between amongst the municipalities to attract business and investment. For that, no. But competition is always competition is always good. But but this this is competition with the global network. This is this is we're looking at. Huge projects. We're looking at things that will, you know, globally. We've got to look at globally. And, and to attract businesses and, and firms to, to this region and to the greater Avalon area, that's what it's all about. And if I could, Craig, just on that note, um, of course we're all going to continue to work to uh, improve our municipalities economically. That's not it. But when we go farther abroad, when we get out of, like, the Newfoundland and Canada spectrum, we become smaller. 
as individual municipalities. Together we are bigger. And when we get to the international front, that's where we want to compete against, uh, not against, but uh, certainly for uh, improved economic development for other initiatives. And we're looking for other investments to come here to help the region as a whole. You know, when it comes to our own work that we're doing nationally and, uh, and, and locally, of course, we'll continue to do that. But when we get further, further abroad, we are smaller, and we need to improve our chances in landing some of the bigger fish out there that we know are looking to invest. Did uh, Mayor Baker have you know, I think that Darren uh, um, put, uh, put, put it well. I mean, we've had a, a very robust discussion. Uh, Mount Pearl was involved in those discussions along the way. Uh, we had the consultants report, and we had some uh, uh, detailed uh, discussions, and uh, uh, Mount Pearl decided to take, an, to take another route, and I think uh, they'd be able to explain that uh, much better than I can. Mount Pearl is such a, a big player in the region. Does, does having them not be involved with this hurt this in any way? Well, you know, look, uh, every as I just said, everything that's uh, that happens in the region is good for everybody in the region. Uh, it's not like it was years ago. The boundaries are, are invisible here now almost. You know, when you're driving, you know, people may get up and CBS in the morning and uh, drive through Paradise to get to St. John's to go to work. Uh, so if you if you uh, attract a new company uh, to one of the municipalities, people may live, may live in any one of our communities. They may shop in any one of our communities. So uh, we need to keep that in mind, that uh, that we need to be able to compete uh, nationally and we need to be able to compete globally. And the best way to do that is to work together with common goals in mind. Uh, Mayor Ben, uh, you said Melbourne dropped out at the 11th hour. Uh, exactly when did you know that Melbourne wouldn't be part of this? I would say probably a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, yeah. For residents of uh, your municipalities, uh, we might be wondering what this means to them. Can you sort of talk about what this means directly to residents? Well, I, I think what, what residents tell me uh, is that they want municipalities and they want groups to work together. And uh, that's what we do as municipalities. We build partnerships every day, uh, whether it's with other levels of government, with ourselves, or with community groups. And we'll be doing that, we'll be doing with the business community, and we'll be sending the message that we're prepared uh, to work together for the betterment of the, of the region, our communities, and the province as a whole. Yeah, and, and just as a note, like, we're all different. So uh, in Conception Bay South, uh, when it comes to things that we do here in our community, primarily taxpayers are footing the bill. We don't have the big industrial base of the size of uh, Paradise or St. John's. Uh, we need to expand that. We need to do the work necessary to increase that commercial income so that we can uh, alleviate some of the burden that we're seeing in increased costs for our residents going forward. It's, uh, it's, it's extremely important for you know, the development and the, and the expansion of our town. It's, a, it's, it's especially important for our residents to guard them and shield them against the inflationary numbers that we're seeing and all different things that they're facing as best we can as a municipality. And we feel that by joining together to make ourselves uh, more visible, more stronger on an international front to attract some of the businesses here that we want. And like Mayor Breen said, you know, they may set up in CBS, they may set up in Paradise, they may set up in sure they might set up in Mount Pearl, but it's more jobs to the region. We're more visible and, uh, and we have a better chance of landing some of those jobs to the this area, and a lot, like Mayor Breen said, a lot of people get up in Conception Bay South every morning, drive to St. John's or somewhere else to work. More opportunities for our residents. That's another thing that it means, and that's really important as well. 
So that was CBS Mayor Darren Bent, uh, Paradise Mayor Dan Bobbitt, and St. John's Mayor Danny Breen, who signed a letter of intent this morning to establish a regional economic development agency. And as you heard, all the questions were, where is Mount Pearl? Well, uh, Richard Duggan headed to Mount Pearl to get an answer from Dave Aker. We'll hear what he has to say coming up right after this. This is News Talk on VOCN. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And as you just heard, the mayor's representing uh, St. John's uh, Paradise, I'm sorry, and CBS signed a letter of intent today to establish a regional economic development agency. And as you heard in the scrum that those uh, mayors had with reporters today, everyone was asking, well, where's Mount Pearl? And uh, the response was, you'll have to ask Mount Pearl that. So uh, Richard Duggan and a couple of other reporters headed out to uh, Mount Pearl City Hall to get Mayor Dave Aker's reaction. No, I think any regional economic development initiative is, uh, is, is a priority for the region. Mount Pearl's taking a different approach in this particular case. Uh, we do partner from time to time with the other municipalities. We do it on a collaborative basis, but we want to make sure that we do something that makes sense for the city of Mount Pearl. Uh, we have an award-winning team here at the city of Mount Pearl in charge of economic development. We're going to be focusing on resident attraction, foreign investment attraction, as well as our Find Your Center strategic plan for the next 25 years. Now, we were told that Mount Pearl was at the table up until the 11th hour. So I guess, what, what was the deciding factor here? Well, I think at the end of the day, we, we, we council was not necessarily in agreement with the structure that would be put in place. And we're trying to make sure we don't overly spend any money on duplication or administration. And we felt the needs of the region could be met by collaborating with our staff meeting around the table. Uh, so I guess to get this right, your your own economic development team, you wanted to keep that in place rather than maybe have that dispersed throughout this new partnership with the other municipalities? Well, either way, if you're going to have that partnership, you know, at some point in time, either you have to take taxpayers' dollars and fund, say, employees of that new organization, or yes, you'd have to take city of, um, of Mount Pearl employees and allocate them to this particular task. Uh, you know, we've got them very, very much engaged on our economic development priorities, um, you know. And that is reflected in the budgets and the priorities here is set by council. Do you think that not participating in this um, in this new agency, do you think that this hurts your relationship with these other municipalities in any way? No, I think the sign of a good relationship is when you can disagree, uh, you know, constructively and still continue to move on. And I know that whatever we do from an economic development point of view, even though it benefits the city of Mount Pearl, it has benefits for the region. And we also are aware that what the region is doing, whether it's individually or in collaboration, is also going to benefit all of us. Uh, what are the next steps for the city now? Uh, the, next, the next steps for us is uh, we're going to be having uh, the Mayor's Outlook tomorrow, uh, hosted by uh, yours truly, and we're going to be announcing uh, some elements of our strategic plan and uh, the priorities for the city coming up. We'll be attracting new businesses as well as finding and attracting new residents. And again, just so it's clear, what are the differences in maybe the way Mount Pearl plans to strategically develop um, rather than what this partnership was looking to do? I think it's fair to say that, again, there's regional benefits to all of this, but the focus we're going to have is developing, uh, from an economic development point of view, the city of Mount Pearl, and we're going to be focused a little bit more sharper on attracting residents to the city as well as attracting new businesses to the city. Creating jobs and growth is our priority. As as you said earlier, Mount Pearl was part of the discussions right up until almost the very end. Is is there anything that 
maybe they could have done differently with this that would have made the city of Mount Pearl say, yeah, we do want to be a part of this? Uh, we looked at all the options together, and I know some of the municipalities uh, didn't necessarily agree with the entire approach going forward. But at the end of the day, yes, three municipalities have signed on to the uh, Memorandum of Understanding. Mount Pearl has chosen not to, but we make ourselves available for any initiative that the, uh, that the region wants to uh, propose, either to the city of Mount Pearl or to the province. And that's Mount Pearl Mayor Dave Aker uh, responding to questions about uh, why the city was not involved in this new um, regional economic development agency idea. Well, Kane's Quest will begin accepting registration for the next snowmobile endurance race, tentatively set for 2024. This year's race, of course, as you remember, was abruptly cancelled after unseasonably warm weather created hazardous conditions for participants. Not long after the race was cancelled, board members started floating the idea of putting off a 2024 race, a full year ahead of the regular two-year schedule. Here's Kane's Quest board chair, Chris Lacey. How's it going? Great. So, Kane's Quest is uh, is back at it. You're going to be soon uh, accepting registration for next year, is that correct? That is correct. So what... will be opening up May 1st. So what prompted this change? Uh, there's several things to it. There was a lot of hype at the end of that race uh, in different manner, mannerisms, we'll call it, but uh, the hype for us to keep going has uh, been stronger than ever before, I think, so we uh, we sat down as a board and spoke to people and uh, our shareholders and stakeholders and funders and stuff, and uh, we feel pretty confident we can put off the race in 2024, so we said, uh, let's do it um, that way then, because I think it'll be detrimental to the race if we don't crown a champion in five years, so uh, we'll get us back to the 2024, 26, 28 series, and as well as it puts us a little offset with the Labrador Winter Games, and it uh, brings it brings it back in the, in action sooner than later. So, how did you manage to work that out for this year, uh, where the uh, the race was abruptly ended? Work work what out? Sorry about that. In terms of uh, you know the the prize package and all. Oops, and we just uh, had a bit of a problem there. Um, uh, we'll try to uh, resume that uh, at another stage, but uh, uh, sorry about that. That's um, that's unfortunate. We'll try and uh, get back to that in a little while. A top Scottish ultra marathoner says she's sorry for using a car. During a recent race, Josiah Zakshevsky is facing disciplinary action from UK Athletics for traveling four kilometers by car during the Great Britain Ultras Manchester to Liverpool race. Zakshevsky is blaming jet lag and miscommunication for her decision to break the rules and then accept an award for finishing the place in third place. And I know, Claudette, that you are set on doing yeah, the... The telly. The telly 10. That's the big one here in Newfoundland and Labrador, of course. There's a couple uh, as well. Uh, Cape to Cabot and the... Uh, was it the Puffin? Oh, yes. Yeah. The, uh, the Puffin. Was that a marathon, I think? That, yeah. That's a Huffin Puffin. Huffin Puffin. Yeah. I remember me. that. But back to that story, um, just read a little bit of it myself because I was very interested in it. 
started as well. And um, what happened at the halfway mark, um, her leg became sore, so she accepted a ride to the next checkpoint. And she told the race directors that she was going to haul out because she had to get into the car. And they said, you'll hate yourself if you stop. So she was just going to continue in a non-competitive way. So I kind of feel that she's being kind of put under the bus a little. Ah, <laughs> and so then, so she was told, you know, this is okay. Yeah. So, so she, she just continues the prize for coming in third place right yeah so that part would be a little bit iffy but the fact that she accepted a car ride and told him that she wanted to continue in a non-competitive way um you know i I feel for her (laughs) absolutely (laughs) minus the accepting of the prize well, ultra marathoner, I'm not sure how that differs from a marathoner, but oh, I'm yeah, guessing it's a lot. pretty arduous. I would suspect, yeah. I mean, that has never been on my radar. I just simply want to do the telly. Even the Cape to Cabot, which is extremely tough, a lot of people it's prefer. Very tough, yeah. Uh, that race, they, they feel very rewarded afterward, but the downhill is, is really difficult on your joints, and it's not something that's on my radar yet. Um, but for people who do it, they say it's so rewarding. I just can't imagine. Well, you think that the, the going up part is hard, which yeah, it is. It, yes. It's but, cardio. But it's the downhill. It's that the would, downhill that's that pounding on your fun, cause Do you think that that would be easy? Knees. But yes, it's the pounding that would be diff- really, really difficult. Yeah, so you've got to have some pretty good footwear and I guess a change of footwear if you need and it. And a really great training plan, too, that you have to stick to. Listen to you. <laughs> It's just because I'm really interested in it, and I'm just, like, willing myself to heal from my ankle injury. (laughs) Well, all the best to you. Thank you. Uh, Just don't get in any cars, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to hear more, uh, sorry about that, the the Chris Lacey uh, interview on um, Kane's Quest, and we're going to hear a few other things as well. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone.